So last week was Father's Day, I'm sure you remember, and I had an interesting experience when I was searching for Father's Day cards, because I was picking out the cards for the grandparents, for my dad and stepdad, and I noticed something that was kind of odd. I would like this card, but it would say, to the best grandpa ever. Now, think about this for just a second, because, you know, dads... It's not uncommon that you know you might have multiple dads in your life. You might have a dad and a stepdad. You might be adopted or whatever. So that's possible. Um, but still, it's it's there's a chance that you have just one dad. And so a card that says "best dad ever" would make sense. Everybody has at least two grandfathers. And so I'm not sure best granddad ever really makes sense. I mean, what if they knew each other and they went over to each other's house and they see that card, best granddad ever, that would be a problem. Maybe maybe, maybe one has passed away. So you're going to disrespect the dead grandfather by getting that card. No, 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 no. This That just was not right. That was not right. But I did, I think I got a card from one of my kids that said best dad ever. So if if you were wondering, it's been settled, uh, and uh, you know, sorry for all of you who came in second and beyond. But uh, no, what what is going on there when when you see a card like that? Now, is that objectively true? Am I the absolute best dad in the world that has ever? Probably not. I do my best, but probably not. But it was true. The sentiment behind it was true, right? Because what, what were my kids saying? They were saying, we love you. We're glad that you're our dad. You are the best dad ever. Not objectively true necessarily, but true to the heart. In church world, very often there is a pressure to put on a face, to not be real, to present a certain reputation or whatever the case may be. Now, I think that's interesting because Jesus was pretty hard on liars. He said that if you lie, you're speaking the native language of the enemy, of the devil. And uh, and yet, sometimes we come into church and we want to put on a good front. We want to, want to, in essence, you know, lead people to think something that may not be true. Or, or we sometimes feel the pressure that if we're having doubts or if we are struggling to deny that and to pretend like that's not the case. And even if we know better, even if we, you know, if push comes to shove, we believe that God is control, we believe that God is good, but sometimes we don't necessarily feel that and we feel the pressure to deny it. So I've been excited about starting this series because for more than a year, I have done an off and on study in the book of Psalms. 
And one of the things that really stood out to me from uh, that started me on this journey was uh, the sense that in the Psalms, you will encounter a wide variety of expressions of feeling and of thought and of experience. And some of them are not nice Christian 11 o'clock on Sunday morning feelings or thoughts or experiences, but yet there they are in inspired scripture. And so the question becomes, why? Why, why are they there? And what do they do for us? And I think that the Psalms are kind of like God giving us the permission to be real. To show us that, yes, whatever you're going through, whatever you're thinking, it, it might not lead you to think and feel thoughts that you might want to express in front of everybody at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning, but it's okay to experience them. And God is big enough to handle them. He's giving us permission to be real. So that's what we're going to talk about in this series. And if you are taking notes, if you look at the at the bottom of that first page, you'll see the number two. There's no number one because I'm pulling out uh, a point from the paradigm series that I think is related to interpreting and understanding the Psalms in particular. Uh, does anybody remember what that pillar is so they can tell us how to fill in that blank? Connor. Hold on to that because that's a good one. We're coming back to that one, even though that's not in the notes. Number two, it says, is what the Bible teaches teaches is true is true. What the Bible teaches is true is true. That's talking about the unity of the Bible that uh, you can't just grab things out of, to use Connor's word, context. You can't just grab it out of context. You have to look at the whole And so when we encounter things in the Psalms that make us wonder that, uh, you know, there's a passage that talks about uh, how wonderful it's going to be when my enemies have their children's heads bashed against the rocks. Now, that's... That's, that's the most dramatic and most troubling ex- example I can pull out. But is the Bible teaching that that's a good thing? No, of course not. But one of the most helpful interpretive keys for understanding the Psalms was heard, I think by Timothy Keller, although I couldn't find it when I was looking for the quote, and it's your next fill in the blank there, that the Psalms are true. But it's in this sense. They are true to feeling. The Psalms are true to feeling. See, when these people wrote these Psalms, whether they were exalting in God's goodness or angry at the injustices that had been visited on their people, they were expressing the way they truly felt. And I think that that is God's giving us permission to be real. The Psalms are true to feeling. So 
uh, as we get into this, I'm going to use this series as an opportunity to walk through a couple of different psalms. Now, there are uh, quite a few psalms, 150 to be exact. We're not going to go through this. This is not going to be a four or five year series. Uh, we're not going to cover every single one, but I want to pull out some that just show us that God is giving us permission to be real and giving us an opportunity to just express whatever we are feeling and experiencing. Now, usually it would make sense to start with Psalm 1. I didn't do that this time because we actually looked at Psalm 1 in pretty good detail just a couple of weeks ago. This is the, blessed is the, is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the blah, 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 you know, that one. It's all about wisdom. Uh, and that's a good one. So go back and listen to that message. It's good. But I picked Psalm 30 to look at because we just looked at Psalm 1, and I think Psalm 30 pulls out um, kind of a good overarching umbrella principle for the Psalms and for understanding the Psalms. So here's how this happened. When I decided I was going to start studying the Psalms, I've been looking for a good commentary. And commentaries on the Psalms are actually kind of hard because there are so many Psalms that you either have, you know, 12 volumes to cover the whole thing and it's just too much, or you have a volume that's like this thin and you can't cover 150 Psalms meaningfully in a volume that's this thin. So I found, ended up founding what has become my favorite commentary on the Psalms. It's called, uh, it's part of the Interpretation Series. It's by James L. May. And so maze. And when I was going through it and got to this psalm, I did basically my life journaling entry on it. And this is the thing that really stood out from the commentary on Psalm 30. And I give you this quote at the beginning of the top of the inside page. And it says the psalm, that's not a typo. He's He's not talking about the psalms. He's talking about this psalm, Psalm 30, shows how Prayer and praise can together become a rubric for holding the experiences of life in relation to God. It makes a simple, direct reading of experience in terms of the context of the Lord's sovereign reality. Now, now that's commentary and scholar speak. Let me kind of just boil it down to the way I understand it. What he's saying there is, In this one short psalm, you see how the psalmist uses every experience of life, the highs and the lows, as a reminder and as a prompt to see all of life under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. Now, what is God's sovereignty? That's just the idea that because God is who he is, that he's ultimately in control. Now, if God is ultimately in control, then that has something to say about the experiences of life that we have. Um, What you see happening very often when people have experiences is, you know, when things go well, they're celebrating. When things are not as they will, when the th- people feel threatened or afraid, there can be a lot of anger. Has anybody watch the news lately? <laughs> There's a lot of anger out there. There's a lot of fear out there. And um, what 
James Mays is pointing out is that for those that know the Lord, when you encounter these troubling, difficult, joyful experiences, the fact that you know God and that you know that God is sovereignly in control should make a difference in your response. It should inform your thinking and therefore your feeling about different things because you know that God is in control. And this psalm does that for us. It's kind of like a a case study in that. So let me go ahead and give you the bottom line. This is back on the first page. And this is what I think this psalm is reminding us. Every circumstance, circumstances, the fill in the blank there, is an invitation to recognize God's presence. Presence is the second fill in the blank. Every circumstance is an invitation to recognize God's presence. So that's what we're going to see. And what I'm going to challenge you to do is to go through this next week with that kind of mindset so that you let whatever life throws at you be a prompt not to be fearful, not to get angry, not to get frustrated, but let it be a prompt to recognize, oh, God is in the midst of this. If it's a good thing, you can offer him praise. And if it's something that's troubling or fearful, uh, anxious, anxiety producing for you, you can use it as a prompt to pray. You're good? Okay. So let's read it together. This is Psalm 30. I'm going to read and we'll work through it in the New Living Translation, which is the Bibles that you have on your tables if you want to follow, open them up and follow along there. Psalm 30. <clears throat> Starts out with a sub, uh, superscription, which uh, I'll just explain that briefly because this is the first time we're doing it in the first message of this series. My, pat, my translation says, a psalm of David, a song for the dedication of the temple. It's above the verse, but included in the psalm. It's in italics. Not every psalm has one of these superscriptions, but many of them do. Generally speaking, we don't consider them a part of inspired scripture, but they were included in early copies of the scripture. A Psalm of David doesn't necessarily mean that it was written by David, but it's part of the collection that is David's collection. And often it will give a particular setting for when it may have been written or when it may have been used in corporate worship. So it's a part of the Davidic collection, and it is a song that would have been used at the dedication of the temple. Verse 1. I will exalt you, Lord, for you rescued me. You refused to let my enemies triumph over me. O oh, Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you restored my health. 
You brought me up from the grave, O Lord. You kept me from falling into the pit of death. Sing to the Lord, all you godly ones. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning. When I was prosperous, I said, nothing can stop me now. Your favor, O Lord, made me as secure as a mountain. Then you turned away from me, and I was shattered. I cried out to you, O Lord. I begged the Lord for mercy, saying, What will you gain if I die, if I sink into the grave? Can my dust praise you? Can it tell of your faithfulness? Hear me, Lord, and have mercy on me. Help me, O Lord. You have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You have taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy that I might sing praises to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord. Uh, You were so authentic and real with us. You were upfront with us, telling us that in this world we will have trouble. But in the midst of that, you always gave us hope. That phrase continues, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Lord, we as your followers, we as Bible believing believers, Christians, we believe that your word is truth and that you are in control and that you are sovereign over everything that happens to us. I pray, Lord, a couple of things. One is that as we study through the scriptures that you will help all of us to sense that permission to be real, that we don't have to pretend in front of you and we don't have to pretend in front of our brothers and sisters. And I also pray that as we look at this psalm specifically, that you would show us how we can use every aspect of life, the ups and the downs, as a prompt to recognize your sovereignty and to draw close to you and never let the experiences of life draw us away from you or drive a wedge between you and us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so it looks like I'm back in business uh, video-wise. And now if only the clicker would work too. (laughs) What am I doing? Oh, you left me a note. Uh, you may need to click the top. Okay, yeah, thank you. Okay, yes. I got to get in the habit of looking for those helpful notes. Um, there we go. Or did you do that? We'll see. Okay, I'm in control. I have the power. All right, so uh, I do this primarily for the video to remind everybody that we meet here on site at 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. You can check the calendar on our website to uh, see exactly what's going on. And remember that there are people who are watching online uh, 9, 10, and 11 on Sunday mornings. And right now, online and on demand is on a week delay. So the people 
you're experiencing it this week here in person, and next week it will be online. And everything that we do is designed to inspire and equip people to follow Jesus wholeheartedly because we believe that following Jesus makes life better and makes you better at life. If you are new, and uh, we would love to be able to welcome you personally and also to stay in touch with you. And the easiest way to do that is if you text the word new to our church number, 603-225-2550, and uh, we'll be able to do that. So a reminder, here's the, here's the bottom line. I believe that this is teaching us that every circumstance is an invitation to recognize God's presence. We said that what the Bible teaches is true is true, and when it comes to the Psalms, that the Psalms are true to feeling. And I showed you this quote from James L. Mays. This Psalm shows how prayer and praise together become a rubric for holding the experiences of life in relation to God. That is, when you just put everything that is coming your way in life, and you can basically put it in two columns. There are things that can prompt praise and things that can prompt prayer. So let's let them do that. I want to walk through this psalm so that you can see the different aspects of this. And we'll start with the very first couple of verses. It's kind of an introduction. And here's where I said, here's where I was thinking about when I said we would come back to the principle that Connor mentioned, which is context is king context is key context is the uh is the number one interpretive uh tool that you have so what is the context in what context is this author writing this psalm it starts out with i will exalt you now we don't usually word use use the word exalt uh, some translations might have extol. Uh, sometimes you might be uh, talking about ex- extolling someone's virtues. Uh, the whole idea here is singing someone's praises. Uh, that we're, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you you know what uh, some awesome stuff about my God. Uh, I will exalt you, Lord, for you rescued me. So what's the context? He's giving thanks. He's telling about how awesome God is in the midst of being rescued. Uh, Back to my idea of the Father's Day card. I think this is kind of like, this is what it's like. This whole psalm is like, this is what it's like when God is your father. It's awesome. He is the best dad ever. So he rescued me. Well, what what was your trouble that you were rescued from? And he explains that. He says, you, God, refused to let my enemies triumph over me. There were people out to get me, but they didn't have a chance. You were my protector. You were my refuge. You rescued me. And then he goes on to say, Oh Lord, my God, I cried to you for help. I, I was calling out for help and you actually heard it and you restored my health. So he has uh, faced enemies. He also, there was something uh, threatening his health, maybe sickness, maybe he was in battle with enemies. We don't know exactly, but we do know that in the midst of his trial and tribulation, he cried out to the Lord and the Lord answered his prayer by saving him from his enemies and restoring his health. And then he goes a little bit more deeply into the context of that and he describes, here's what it was like when you, when you rescued me when you when you restored my health you brought me up from the grave 
Now, remember, the Psalms are poetic language. These are true to feeling. He's saying, look, I was as good as dead and buried. I was in the grave. But you reached down into the grave and you pulled me up and put me back on my feet. I love the, the imagery of the next, uh, the next measure. Actually, this is a good point uh, to point out that Hebrew poetry is in lines made of measures. Usually each line has two measures and they're in parallel, they're in contrast, they inform one another in your growth guide and also on the screen beginning with this week i've kept them in their lines and measures so that you can see that and more easily pick out the parallelism and the contrast etc so uh so this is a whole line verse three is a line with two measures that are in parallel so he's first off saying I was dead I was as good as dead and buried and you lifted me up from the grave and then he says you kept me from falling into the pit of death some of your translations might say sheol which is the place of the dead in the hebrew understanding at that time and the picture here is I was falling into Sheol. Sometimes that's translated into hell. It's just the place of the dead. It's not hell as we would normally think of it. But I was I was tumbling into the pit of death and you reached in and snatched me out of that and kept me from falling. There were people falling into the pit of death, but you snagged me out of that. You rescued me. You saved me. So, that's the context. This is the overarching in this is the overarching description. I was in trouble. I'm going to sing your praises because I was in trouble from enemies. I was as good as dead, but you rescued me, God. So I want to tell the world about it. And he's using these circumstances as an invitation to recognize God's activity and his presence and his sovereignty in the midst of it all. So what's the next thing he's thinking about? He's like, okay, this is what it's like to have God watching out for you. This is what it's like to have God on your six. With the Lord, the good days outweigh the bad. Now, just like objectively, I may not be the best dad in the world, but that's how my kids expressed themselves to me on Father's Day. This is not an absolute promise Yes, you're always going to have more good days than bad. But what is the what is the psalmist saying? Saying this is what it's like to have God as your father. Man, it just seems like you can have a bad day, but there's always going to be a good day following it up. He says in verse 4, "Sing to the Lord, all you godly ones, praise his holy name." Why? For his anger lasts only a moment but his favor lasts a lifetime. This is what it's like to have God as your father. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning. Now, perhaps you can remember back to a time where you had a bad night. It could have been by pain, because of pain. It could have been you drank too much caffeine and it was keeping you up, or you ate some bad pizza and that was keeping you up, but uh, sometimes nights can seem to last forever, can they not? Uh, 
in my first year of college, we went on a trip to the Florida Keys for a campus ministry's Keys retreat. And it was like, this is going to be awesome. We're going to be hanging out and camping in the Keys and go swimming. And, and it's going to have a spiritual focus. It's going to be great. So the first night, this is in September in South Florida, outside in tents, was the worst night I have ever, ever had. Can I tell you about this night? Uh, number one, it's September. Now, here in September, it's beginning to get cool. It's not happening in South Florida, in the Florida Keys. No, it's still hot, and even worse, it's humid. I used to laugh when people would tell me it's humid in New Hampshire because your most humid days are the mildest, nicest days in Florida. I have to tell you, you have not experienced humidity. I'm sorry. So uh, so it's probably in the upper 70s, low 80s in the middle of the night. It's probably 80, 90% humidity. And so I grew up in a house in Florida with no air conditioning. And um, when you are trying to sleep in your house in a night like that, you don't want anything touching you. You know, you're wearing as few clothes as possible. You're not pulling any sheets up and you've got a box fan sitting 12 inches from you on high blowing on you and you're still hot. So that's what it's like. Now here we're outside. There are no box fans, but what there are are mosquitoes because it's South Florida and you're in the middle of the Florida Keys in September. And so I did this dance all night long between being so hot that I wanted nothing on me, so throwing the sheets off of me and then being eaten alive by mosquitoes so I would pull the sheet over me and try to keep the mosquitoes away for as long as I could possibly do it until I just became too hot and suffocated that I had to throw the sheets off. That's how the night went. Eventually, people were getting up because nobody was sleeping, and we were walking around and looking at what was in the water, and it was a miserable night. Sometimes... Your nights can last forever. But what does this say? Here's what it's like to have God as your dad. Even, even though those nights seem to last forever, even though things do not always go according to plan, even though you believe God's in control, but if you were in control, you would certainly arrange things a little bit differently. Here's what it's like. The good of knowing God as your father is still going to outweigh the bad. His anger, it might seem like he's angry at you, but it's fleeting. It's not going to last forever. His favor is going to last a lifetime. Psalm 23, which most of you will be familiar with, talks about how you know, in a lot of the Psalms you'll see enemies are chasing people down. And in Psalm 23, it says, your goodness is going to chase me down all the days of my life. Your favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping and mosquitoes and humidity may last through the night, but the morning is coming. That's what it's like to have God as your father.
So why not use every circumstance as an invitation to recognize his presence in your life? He goes on, the psalmist does, he or she, because you know, it's a collection, we don't know that it was necessarily written by David, to tell us that the ups and downs of life remind me of your sovereignty. It, it reminds me of God's sovereignty. What does he say? Psalm 30, verse 6. When I was prosperous, I said, nothing can stop me now. Another translation says, secure. When I was secure. What makes you feel secure? Is it having the right job, having the money in the bank, having the right relationships? Just think of whatever makes you feel the most secure. This is what... The, the psalmist is saying is, I felt so secure. When I was prosperous, I said, nothing can stop me now. Literally, I will not be shaken. There is nothing that can throw me off of my game. That's what it's like when, when you have the favor of the Lord, because that's what he ascribes it to. Now, look, again, what he's doing, he's saying, I feel secure, and I feel like nothing can shake me. Who do I attribute that to? Well, I'm going to attribute it to God. Your favor, O oh Lord, made me as secure as a mountain. I, I couldn't be moved. You have as much hope of moving a mountain as you do of moving God's favor off of you. But then he said, but you know what? Then you turned away from me. You turned your face from me. And I was shattered it's a reminder that all the good that I have, I, I'm dependent upon the Lord for that. And if he were just to remove his watch care over us for even just the briefest of times, we would be sunk. We would be sunk. So what does the psalmist do? He recognizes every circumstance is an invitation to recognize God's presence, his sovereignty over my life. And so as a result... You know, it's actually kind of part of my job to let people know about this. It, it, it's just right and appropriate to express it. Just like it's just right and appropriate for you as a kid to express your gratitude to your mothers on Mother's Day and your fathers on Father's Day to recognize their birthdays and to remember them at Christmas. It's just appropriate because of who they are to you. And what we see in this psalm is that the psalmist understands that part of his purpose and part of my purpose is singing your praises, extolling your virtues, exalting the Lord. And in fact, he uses this as part of his plea. When he finds himself in trouble, he's so used to recognizing the goodness of God and using it as a prompt to express the goodness of God that when he gets in trouble... And he's crying out to God. He uses it as a reminder to say, Lord, remember, this is, this is what I do. This is part of my purpose. And so he says to the Lord, what will you gain if I die, if I sink into the grave? Well, what will happen if, if I'm not around anymore? Can my dust praise you? Can it tell of your faithfulness? It's like, Lord, this, this is part of why I'm here to tell other people about your goodness, to bear testimony to your faithfulness and your love. So I want you to rescue me. And, and, and there's probably some selfish reason in there. You know, I don't want to go through pain. I don't want to be falling into the grave. But what are you going to gain if I sink into the grave? Because I'm going to praise you. 
I'm going to tell other people about you. I'm going to sing your praises. Every good thing you bring into my life, I'm going to turn around and express my thanksgiving. So if I turn to dust, then that ain't going to happen. So hear me, Lord. Have mercy on me. Help me, O Lord. Now, spoiler alert, he told us at the very beginning that God had answered his prayer. So how does he describe it? He goes on and he says, You have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You took me out of a funeral and put me into a wedding party. You've taken away my clothes of mourning. You know, we don't do this as much anymore, but used to be if someone in your family passed away, you would wear clothes of mourning for a long time, sometimes for months, sometimes a year or more. And so it was just an outward sign that there was a heartbreak within. And he said, you've, you, you've given me a change of clothes. You've taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy. Uh, my, my, my outfit for today is joy. And you've turned that around. You've, you've done that for me. But what, what does he see as his purpose, as God's purpose in that that, that indicates purpose, that I might sing praises to you and not be silent. Uh, Mays points out in his commentary that one of the most tragic things that the, the psalmist is recognizing in this psalm is the association of silence with death. And in contrast, joyful praise, expressions of praise with life. It's like, the reason that you'd work this transformation is in part so that I can sing your praises to you and I'm not going to be silent. I'm not going to be silent dust. I'm not going to be silent. Oh Lord, therefore, I will give you thanks forever. That's just going to be an ongoing state of affairs. Now, very often what happens in the Psalms is there's an original context. There's the context that that the... ancient Old Testament Hebrew people used for it. But then when Jesus comes on the scene, it, Im- it, it, it imbues, is that the right word? It, it, it infuses new meaning into these passages. And in fact, the Psalms are used over and over again to understand Jesus. And I see that happening here. Um, because what is it about death? It's silence. What is it about life? It's the opportunity to give thanks, but for how long? Forever. Ongoing. Now, we know from the benefit of our position in history, looking back on the cross and knowing the gospel, that when we cry out to the Lord, he saves us. He rescues us. He gives us ultimate salvation. And as a result, we have the opportunity even the calling to declare his praises and his goodness. And how long do we get to get to do this? How long do we get to do this? Forever. Forever. So when you say yes to Jesus, you're saying yes to the forgiveness that he offers. You're saying yes to the rescue that he has effected for us. You're saying yes to his lordship and leadership. And as a result, you get forever life. Forever life. 
this whole series is really about emotion. And what is it saying? It's like in the Psalms, we see God giving you permission to be real. And in particular, in this Psalm, you can see that the highs and lows of life, every circumstance can be an invitation to recognize God's presence in your life. So let's do that. For those things that you encounter that are difficult, that are trials, that might engender fear or anger in you, why not redirect that energy into prayers? Use it as an opportunity and a prompt to cry out to God. Not to rail against the world, not to throw bricks at your TV, not to curse the darkness, but to just say, Lord, this is not right, but you're in control. So I'm going to turn this energy into entreaties to you. I'm going to cry out to you. I'm going to ask for your help. I'm going to ask you to change things. In the process, you will draw nearer to God as opposed to walking away. Your relationship will be strengthened rather than shaken. And when good things happen, when he answers those prayers, when he rescues, when he blesses, when you just feel like God is the best dad ever, use that as an opportunity to praise him, to express his goodness back to him and to others because that's part of your purpose. Be real about it, but let it draw you closer to your heavenly Father in the midst of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, wow, what a, what a privilege that you encouraged us to dress you that way. And as part of that, we trust you. We trust you with the good things, with the bad things, with the things that we would celebrate and the things that we would avoid if we could. We know that you are good. We know that you are in control. And I pray, Lord, that when we encounter those things, that you would use them in our lives as a prompt for us to turn to you, sometimes crying out to you, sometimes just saying, help, rescue, save. And other times, thank you. You are so good. You are so powerful. We are so grateful for you. But in every circumstance, let it be a prompt to draw close to you. May we be that kind of people, people who are called by your name and calling on your name and extolling your name day in and day out. And it's in the name of Jesus, the name that is above every other name, that we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.